love, it's fake democracy. We're going up the wrong way, we're going to have to stop. Critics of a secret wars, they can't expose them all. We're going up the wrong way, we're going to have to stop. Welcome to episode 39 of the Cake Watch podcast. Uh, my name is Chris Kendall, uh, blah, 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 Eurocrat, blah, 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 personal capacity. Cakewatch, the podcast that does not relocate its headquarters to Singapore. Um, with me is, uh, again, not Steve, uh, who's still taking a rest, um, but I'm very excited to introduce Dmitry Grozobinski. Dmitry, did I p- pronounce that correctly? You pronounced that remarkably correctly. Uh, I, I would almost suspect that you you're outsourcing to some shady shady contractor who will not be allowed back into the United Kingdom following the people's Brexit. So listen, Dimitri, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on. Um, you um, blew onto the Twitter scene in a big way last year with your super nerdy trade threads and um, your snarky style, which um, obviously really annoyed me and riled me because you basically stole what I'd been doing and just started doing it really better. <laughs> and we've literally only just met um, virtually. I mean, we, we, we know each other on Twitter, but I've, I've never spoken to you before. Um, and so literally about five minutes ago, we first got to each other and we were just busy having a chat about some things that connect us um, beyond the trade sphere. Um, you, you were telling me that you have Ukrainian origins and Ukraine is, is close to my heart as I worked on Ukraine for a number of years, um, both for the UK and the EU. Uh, but you are an Australian. I am. Uh, I should also I should also warn your listeners, I'm far less amusing, intelligent and witty when I don't get to carefully edit everything that <laughs> kind of comes out of me via the medium of a Twitter. Um, God, you you again, you're like me. <laughs> I think your listeners will also soon find out there's a there's a reason I'm best confined to 280 characters. Um, <laughs> well, we've only got a, um, an hour and a bit to record, so this is we're gonna have to make this a single take. Um, no crappy edits. I say that I've already had to <laughs> restart a couple of times because I mucked up my entrance. Anyway, so Dimitri, um, I don't know. First, I mean, maybe just tell us a little bit about um, yourself and your background and what brought you onto Twitter to talk about Brexit and trade and stuff. Sure. So uh, I guess my start really in trade in any kind of serious way was when I was posted to Geneva to be a trade negotiator for the Australian government. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, when you're uh, you're a government official in a position like that, um, you absolutely can't have a social media presence on anything that relates even tangentially to, to your work. If you kind of (laughs) <laughs> criticize the location of a highway overpass in the neighboring state that can have consequences for you professionally. So I was kind of, I was always a, a social media lurker. Um, I'm one of those hopeless tech, tech millennial nerds who's kind of had a, had a Reddit account for 10 years and, and followed all, uh, you know, thinks in terms of sequenced memes, but, w- but was only ever able to participate in a very anonymous or very, um, uh, or very limited way, and certainly never, never in my field. Um, and then uh, I, I left the left the public service, and that that freed me up a little bit. Um, and, and Brexit was never really something I was uh, following at all. Um, mm-hmm. So but, why would you? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> just sort of thinking back on it now, I had the chance to walk away. Now <laughs> here we are. Um, 
uh, and I'm sort of looking at it, and sort of more and more things would appear in my in, in my Twitter stream, and people were just being wrong. <laughs> like, On Brexit, you amaze yeah. me. Well, indeed. And look, I think anybody who works in trade policy is used to truly insane claims being made about their field. I mean, trade is this kind of thing that's that's generally been niche enough and operated under the radar enough, and there was enough of a political consensus around it that the only people with strong opinions on it were either people in the field who were just kind of talking to each other or people who are really emotionally invested in it and often um, not as connected to the realities of how it works. Um, So there was a lot of kind of TPP will kill us in our homes kind of commentary that we were used to, but generally it's all fairly kind of, okay, people are entitled to have strong opinions, it's fine. Whereas watching a lot of the the commentary around Brexit, and especially when they wandered into kind of WTO territory, I was seeing things that I thought were genuinely dangerous. Not from a, is Brexit a good idea point of view, um, but things that I saw where where people were giving, I think, British businesses and EU businesses the impression that they could stand down and stand easy. And that even in the kind of worst negotiating case scenario of a no-deal some WTO loophole meant yeah. that it would all be fine. And I'm sitting there going, guys, trucks aren't going to move. Um, yeah. And, you know, you have these kind of professional commentariat class people with knighthoods and lordships going, oh, it'll it'll be fine. Yeah. Or, you know, and then the subtext would be like in 10 years. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, well, I don't have 10 years worth of savings. And I don't think most small business owners in the UK have 10 years worth yeah. of savings. And I certainly don't think most workers in the UK have 10 years' worth of savings. And the difference between utter disaster and merely things being really, really bad in a no-deal scenario is a degree of preparation. And the things that I was seeing were pushing back on the idea that preparation was needed at all. This is kind of mid-last year, early last year. And so I started getting kind of engaged in it a little bit more... um, trying to point out where people had perhaps, you know, misunderstood the WTO rules or perhaps should read beyond the title of the agreement um, and just, you know, work out what it actually does. And then, you know, six months later, here I am. So, I mean, you really don't have a dog in this fight. You're not like me who's, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, totally... Uh, nuts, Europhile type, and 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 Steve, who who has all this history. I mean, we, we we're like you know emotionally uh, invested in all of this stuff. I mean, you're just you know coming as as as, as a third country national, uh, no axe to grind here. All you're seeing is a lot of people saying absolutely wrong things about the subject area that you know the best. So you thought, well, I'll wade in. <laughs> How's that going for you? <laughs> it, it's been it's been a it's been an interesting ride. Um, uh, I think. For me, what I've tried to be really clear on is that I'm not informed enough to have an opinion on the broader question of Brexit. Mm -hmm. Something I get a lot is, well, Brexit wasn't just about trade, so why are you talking about it? And look, I mean, I I find that slightly dismissive, but I I do take that on board. Look, I I have no idea how the ECJ works. I, I don't really know how your immigration system works beyond the kind of services trade elements of it. I don't know what it's like to live under the yoke of bendy banana regulations. Um, so maybe you are all horrib- 
deeply oppressed and the only chance the the UK has is to take any trade consequences, any amount of economic pain to get out from under this nightmare. I have no idea. It's outside of my experience. I, I genuinely just don't know. And I'm very careful to try to not to comment on that. Mm. Um, I've reserved the only time I venture outside of my trade lane is when people start talking about um, immig- immigration in, mm. a, in a truly pejorative sense because, look, I left the what was had just been the Soviet Union when I was six and I was incredibly mm. fortunate that Australia was open and willing to take us in. Mm. And, you know, I'm... I'm a first-generation immigrant who could join the Australian Foreign Service. Yeah. And, and I like to think I, I've made my country proud. So I do get a little bit uppity when people start um, throwing too sharp an elbows at, at immigrants yeah. from the EU or otherwise. But otherwise, I stay very narrowly in my trade lane. Um, and what, I guess what, one of the things that concerns me about, um, uh, about the reaction to that is you get this kind of shifting game where, on the one hand, it's like, well, no, 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 guys. Brexit wasn't about trade. Go away with your trade sayings. It was all about freedom and sovereignty. Mm. Yeah, okay. But then why is so? Why are so many of the people involved in the Brexit debate constantly lying about it? Yeah, come on. I mean, it, they bang on about trade endlessly. And for many of them, I mean, this is the thing, you know, leave covers just a vast range of opinions there's no i mean there are sort of 17 million different views as to why people voted leave and for damn sure many of them voted because they were told oh yeah you know what we leave the eu we can finally do our own trade deals we can be the new singapore we could be the new new zealand we can whatever but don't tell me that trade doesn't figure in the reasons that people voted for brexit especially when half the brexit as you look at are banging on and on and on about how Brexit is going to deliver this new buccaneering uh, UK that will trade freely with the world and all this kind. Of, I mean, come on. That's that's exactly right. And and even within even the within those who uh, will say that they voted for Leave for trade reasons, I have had kind of in my missions people talking to me. Those who voted Leave because they want to be Singapore on the Thames, liberalise everything, zero subsidies, let's let the market dogs run free. Mm. And also people who are like, this will finally give us a chance to properly protect our industries from competition. Mm. And, and I mean, this is kind of, I guess this is the, the danger of yes, no referendums exactly. on massively complicated <laughs> policy choices that, yeah. you know, really in a yay or nay doesn't entirely give you a, a, a sense of what people actually want. Um, I, I always compare it to um, in, in polling you will often find that uh, I look at U.S. politics a lot and you'll have like, you know, President Barack Obama is losing to generic Republican by five points and is beating every single individual candidate you could possibly think of on the Republican side by 20. Mm -hmm. And it is because generic Republican, like leave, is something that everyone can project their own idealized version of what that would look like onto. Yeah, Um, exactly. Which is why we need, of course, we need a second vote because we need to have some sort of uh, detail on this shit that is going to happen to us, and people need to make informed decisions. And again, when, when you when you look at the polls, whenever uh, the poll asks a sort of generic you know, "remain or leave" and leaves leave open with a you know um, some kind of unicorn side deal, managed no deal scenario, people are like, oh yeah, that sounds kind of cool. And whenever you start getting specific, the numbers just sort of go off a cliff. And um, yeah, this it's. It's really annoying. 
Uh, I mean, I, I prefer, rather than looking at it, at kind of shifting opinion polls and what do we think this week, I mean, I, uh, I tend to look at it as genuinely an advisory referendum, which is that over half the country said they didn't like the way things were going and that they didn't, they didn't like the current situation and, that, and they sent, I think they did send a strong signal to, to government and they channeled that through an EU lens. They said, look, our being in the EU um, and everything that comes with it, like th th there's a strong sense of th that we don't like this. But to treat that as, okay, automatically that means we need to leave tomorrow or we need, to, we need a no deal is I think taking it taking it one step too far. I think oh, my, too my far, perception <laughs> my perception is that um, the advisory referendum should be taken in the spirit that 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 it that it kind of isn't an advisory referendum. It was a way to send a very strong signal to the government, and that was sent. But it's not a binding blood oath <laughs> that kind of hell or high water, no matter what the policy says. Um, you know, you absolutely now positively, even if the whole country turns against it, you have to go through with it because that's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, as <laughs> a ship that has sailed and is halfway to Melbourne already, I think. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen, um, I, I was um, uh, slightly amused um, back early on when you were introducing yourself and you were sort of saying about how um, as a public official of course you could never tweet about any of this stuff and you would absolutely had absolutely zero social media exposure <laughs> I was like looking a bit shifty thinking she, yeah because mm. <laughs> of course I am um, but as we know we I do this in a strictly personal capacity what, what my Twitter presence definitely moved into another gear when I did a couple of tweet uh, tweet threads about trade about um where i just sort of talked about you know the eu what it's like as a trading uh, organization trading power how it's how it sees itself just combating a few myths about um protectionism but that, that, that have become sort of accepted articles of faith in in large swathes of the uk discussion and it really annoyed me and it was only after doing that just sort of puncturing a few a few of these myths that that um people sort of began to say, oh, you know, actually, that's quite interesting. Yeah, that's probably true. And I wasn't saying anything radically um, newsworthy. I mean, it was it's not as if this stuff is, is secret or, or difficult to find out, but it just it's, people just didn't talk about it, and especially people who actually worked in it. And that's what made me think... This has been a great couple of years in some respects for people like you and me who actually work in this stuff and who normally would never, ever uh, get any kind of um, public... <laughs> Um, exposure and probably rightly so but I mean you know in, in in this context and social media in particular that has definitely um, given us uh, a platform to start talking about this boring nerdy shit that we that we do um, I mean my my experience was um, so I, I I don't have anything like the same trade experience as you do I've, I've done a bit of trade work especially earlier on in my career so more sort of 20 years ago 25 years ago and I, I did for example I was doing the um, the gap uh, Uruguay round negotiations, and I used to go out to Geneva a lot for that. Is the WTO? It must still be in. What is it? The um, is it's now the, in the, the Centre William Rapard. Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah. What so the old ILO building. Yeah, ILO, exactly. which is and very very funny because yeah. yeah because it has these like glory of labour, almost communist kind of <laughs> yeah. movements with bare chested yeah. workers it's mightily excellent. swinging hammers, and you're in there kind of talk in the belly of the neoliberal beast, if you prefer, yeah. kind of yeah. under the watchful gaze of the proletariat. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like, yeah. really, it is. It's, it's really bizarre. You walk in, and as you say, you, you, <laughs> it's where it's where the modern capitalist world happens, and, and there are all these beautifully rendered um, socialist realist mosaics staring down at you. Um, with, yeah, it's great. I think it's certainly where we where, where we like to pretend the modern capitalist world uh, happens. Um, it's really up the road in Davos, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, one thing I, I'm, I don't miss about being a public servant is having to go to Davos uh, <laughs> in a kind of support capacity. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Yeah, I've, I've only ever done it once. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a, it's an odd place. And I, Every year you, you, they all come back and they say, oh, my God, I'm never doing that again. And they always do. But, yeah. You can't – I mean, you can't – genuinely, I understand why, why officials and ministers go – um, watching our trade and investment minister have, you know, 20 back-to-back meetings with the heads of huge investment funds talking about how to attract, you know, potentially billions of dollars into Australia. And, he's, mm. and he was able to do that kind of literally one after the other all day. Mm. I don't think he went to a single WEF session, but that's not why any of them go. And like, okay, I can see why you yeah. made this trip out. Um, yeah. But for, for the guy taking notes or for the guy standing outside in negative 16 degrees in the suit waiting to guide the, you know, deputy head of investment for Microsoft up the stairs, it is uh, far less fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you said it. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, we've, we've already sort of dumb, um, dived right into the middle of uh, of the trade weeds. Um, so before we go further, uh, just a very quick bit of follow-up. Um only one piece this week, which is that um, last week uh, Tanya Bultmann was on um, and we had a great chat about um, EU citizens' rights. This was before, of course, the shock announcement um, of the government's super generosity in waiving the £65 fee it was going to charge um, people like Tanya uh, and my mum for applying for permission to stay in their own homes. So thanks very much, Teresa, for that super piece of generosity. Um, the day after our podcast went up i um tweeted a couple i made a couple of tweets um linking into the hands-off campaign that 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 tanya launched and uh ironically i immediately got into a uh fight with um uh a gammon uh who said some rather disobliging things about uh, my (laughs) mum and i got myself put in twitter prison for 12 hours for (laughs) saying some (laughs) inappropriate things which of course, I regret, and I deleted. <laughs> and it's doubly ironic because the week before that, we did a podcast. I did a podcast with Laura Shields on anger management. <laughs> so, oops. Anyway, um, that's the only follow-up I've got. So, uh, Dimitri, what should we talk about? <laughs> it's, it's your podcast, guys. Uh, um... Should we talk? A- yeah, I, I. I think we. I think there's um, a lot of really interesting stuff that we could do to talk about that we can talk about on the trade front. I really do, and I think that um, maybe we can start by talking a little bit about this. Uh, the the most incredibly annoying three words in the English language: uh, managed no deal, <laughs> um, or to put it another way, um, WTO agreement. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about that. Boy, that annoys yeah. me. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, again, I try very hard not to be partisan, but I guess the piece of advice I would offer 
to people is if one side of a debate is talking about real practical issues and that's what they do every day and they're talking about you know procedures and paperwork and delays and risks and the other side is spending each and every day coming up with a new way to rebrand their thing not not discuss the detail of it but just come up with a new name Mm. then that should be a pretty solid indication of who is engaging in good faith I mean, I think there's just a good ru- deal of rule of thumb to follow, um, yeah. uh, and so it, it does. It does annoy me. Um, I mean, God, I, you know, I've now written written articles, literally written articles about it. Um, mm. But I guess what what troubles me is that it's you know we're a year and a bit into this discussion, and it's still this attempt to muddle and confuse the core fundamental trade issue of Brexit which is the UK's trading relationship with the EU. Hmm. From a trade perspective, Brexit is the UK walking out of a trade agreement. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I recognize the, the EU is far from only a trade agreement, and I get in trouble when I say things like this. The, the, obviously, it's a huge project, but from a purely trade perspective, that is what the UK is doing. Hmm. Any... A kind of any model or any solution that doesn't, uh, or any path forward that doesn't fundamentally focus on what is going to be the trading relationship between the UK and the EU on day one of Brexit, day 50 of Brexit, and day 700 of Brexit, is not a serious attempt to engage with the core trade problem. It's, mm. It just isn't. And the WTO rules... Like, WTO Brexit is reverting the UK to a trading relationship with the EU, it roughly, roughly in, term, in legal terms, in market access terms, in every kind of term, roughly equivalent to that of, like, Bolivia. Yeah. And, and, and I can tell you, you know, there aren't... Bolivians do not have the ease of access into the EU for either goods or services that the UK currently enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so any kind of discussion of this that overlooks that is is deliberately trying to to use misdirection hmm. to to focus people on this minute minute tangential benefit that's not entirely certain at all uh, uh, from WTO rules at the expense of talking about the the giant elephant in the room that's eating everybody's furniture so you you used one of my favourite analogies, Brexit analogies that I've ever, I've ever seen anywhere in one of your um, blog pieces. I thought this was outstanding. It was in, more in the context of um, TRQs and, and, and negotiations um, in, in Geneva on precisely what happens with the TRQs and so on. But it was, um, I think you were talking about, it's, it's as if you're arguing over a burning house in Pompeii while Vesuvius, Vesuvius is busy blowing its top. <laughs> There's a pyroclastic flow heading directly towards us, and you're sitting there worrying about whether or not you should put out the fire in the living room of this house. I mean, it's just, it was a, it's a superb analogy, because I think it's absolutely bang on right. <laughs> Ironically, that analogy, uh, I'm thinking back to the article, it was in the context of kind of schedules, and saying yeah. precisely that you shouldn't worry about the WTO schedules, because um, the, the question of the EU is, is the looming one. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that, look, that, that's exactly right. And I think the reason, the reason they're able to get away with it is that open trade with the EU has been going on for so long 
and is so ingrained into society that you kind of don't notice hmm. you don't notice it's there anymore and you can't entirely imagine what it would be like That's if exactly it was gone. Right. Yeah, they totally take it for granted. Yeah. I get really frustrated, you know, there was this there was a story around saying oh the UK might not be able to uh filter water properly in following a no deal Brexit. Now, water services might be yeah. impacted by a yeah. no deal Brexit. Yeah. And and look the reaction to that the reaction to that on Twitter was I think typical of this whole scenario because there was a lot of like oh what is rain going to stop falling if we leave <laughs> the EU. Yeah. And look, I get, I genuinely, I don't want to dismiss these people as, as kind of s- stupid or arrogant because they're not. There is just no, th- there is, there is absolutely no reason that your average person should ever think about the fact that completely integrated trade with the EU has allowed us, has allowed us, has allowed the UK and the the European Union to set up complex supply chains built around this ability to just load stuff up on a truck and then have it be in the UK frictionlessly without kind of a great deal of paperwork exactly when you need it to be there. Yeah. Um, and it, therefore, you know, something like a factory that build, that produces um, filtration liquid or purification liquid, there's no point building 27 of those or 28 of those, one exactly. in every member state. You build a giant one in one member state, and then you rely on the fact that trade in the EU just works to make sure that everybody gets what they need. It's uh, always kind of the point of the EU. It's the economies of scale that means that you know you can produce these things more cheaply, and everybody's a winner. That's the, the point. The, the uh, there's a there's a comparison I've always wanted to make, but um, have been confined to, to two eighty characters. Um, and I'm actually the I should I should say I'm the only white guy under thirty five who's never been on a podcast before. So <laughs> I, I don't normally get to ramble on this way, but. If you think about what makes the U.S. A, a manufacturing powerhouse and a design powerhouse and a kind of exporting powerhouse, one of the things that the U.S. is able to do is it goes, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to combine New York capital with, say, Silicon Valley uh, IT, design from, uh, say, Portland with uh, you know, manufacturing in the, in the Rust Belt. Hmm. So essentially, it, it cobbles together out of 50 states that in some ways are as diverse uh, as many of the EU member states in terms of their kind of competitive advantages yeah. and their, their kind of economic strengths. And because the US is essentially a single market, um, ironically for services less so than the EU, but Indeed, yeah. we'll set, set that nerd quibble aside – they're able to then pool all of their resources, create US-wide supply chains to the extent that their infrastructure allows. Um, and that is a huge force multiplier. And then yeah. on top of that, they then have NAFTA, which means that they can also call on um, Canadian competitive advantage and Mexican competitive advantage in this further broadening that strength. And that creates this mega region that is incredibly competitive. Yeah. Um, it is very hard for any individual state now to match to match something like that, yeah. um, which is which is why the the EU by pooling its by pooling its collective talents and by kind of setting up these supply chains has been able to be competitive precisely because it is twenty eight states pooling their resources. Um, and I don't think people it's it's absolutely understandable why people 
don't have a lot of visibility on that. It's not something you can easily see. It's not even intuitive. I think most people generally assume that whatever they buy, you know, if it says made in France, it was made entirely in France. Hmm. You know, there is a factory in France that makes this, you know, if there's a Fiat factory, there's a factory that makes Fiat's. Um, and, and it's really when you get into the weeds of this stuff that you go, N -n -n, that's not how that's not how anything works that's anymore. How supply chains work, no, 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 absolutely not. Uh, and it's not the, it's not as if products manufactured in the EU are entirely sourced within the EU. I mean, no. um, there are supply chains, of course, that extend outside and beyond the EU, just as there are supply chains in the US that extend beyond the US and even beyond NAFTA. Um, but they are established, they are integrated. Um, the bureaucracy and paperwork and uh, entailed in sourcing those um, items from outside the EU, those are already factored in, those are costed in. And you know, very often they'll come from countries with which, of course, the EU does have um, a, a trade agreement. Um, what the UK is proposing to do is to, especially with, with in, in, in a no deal scenario, is not only are you ripping yourself out of that integrated single market, but you're also then ripping yourself out of the wider network of markets from which you know. And and let's and again, what what are the um, components and some that are sourced from outside the EU to go into just in time you know, European manufacturing? Well, very often they're, they're raw materials. And, the UK is not going to be supplying many of those. Um, or, you know, okay, potentially very high value added. Uh, and it may well be that um, that the UK can produce um, some of those kinds of components in, 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 in low volume. But <laughs> one of the reasons why the UK has uh, flourished in, in terms of its uh, um, high value added high-tech industries, has been that integration with the EU market and access to, 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 to um, R&D funding, for example, and, and, and all the other benefits that come with um, being in a market that produces um, a huge number of very highly qualified, very highly educated uh, workers that can uh, move across borders and, 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 and are willing to do that. So pulling it in, in no sense, on no level, does pulling yourself out of that market make any... It just isn't going to work. Look, it's uh, as I said from a from a trade perspective, that's entirely correct. Um, so, which is which is why the way I come at it is: listen, if you want if you want a Brexit, if you are so deeply concerned about what you see as a as a giant supranational project, or uh, you're you're that concerned about EU regulations impacting UK business, and, and you are then prepared to suffer the the trade consequences of this then, then look that's that's your decision who am i to second guess you but the point out but you should fully understand the trade consequences yeah be honest and, about it and we should be honest and and i think you should be honest and i think we're going to get to this a little bit later in the podcast but um you should be honest about the fact that an fta with australia new zealand and even the u.s is simply no substitute for <laughs> frictionless trade with the eu I mean, it's just oh, fundamentally different beasts. Um, well, I mean, and also, you know, look at a lot of a lot of. Um, okay, so the just-in-time manufacturing um, that you get in the say the car industry in, in the UK. Um, so you know, there are there are big lorry loads that come off Roro ferries, um, sure. 
But there are also the little parts that come over in little white vans that have come through the Channel Tunnel, driven by Kieran, the white van driver, etc. <laughs> and you're not going to get them coming from... Those aren't going to come from Australia or even from, uh, from you know, Ohio. You don't, you don't trade like that with countries on the other side of an ocean. It just doesn't, it's just not how it works. Well, I, I think that the other question is, look, obviously no deal doesn't mean trade stops or even or stops forever, right? So even, even in the absolute worst case scenario, five, five, ten years from now, um, the, the Roro Ferry situation will be sorted out one way or the other. Either a huge chunk of that transport will just no longer be kind of commercially viable or they will have bulldozed half of Kent in order to build enough processing centers to have the, the, the truck flow work properly. But the question you have to ask yourself is how much of the reason manufacturing or, um, or businesses were setting up in the UK was tied into the access they enjoyed in the EU? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the, the, the modern UK, there is nothing... Um, uh, there's nothing. There is nothing unique in the water of the Thames that makes that makes it a particularly good place for financial services. For example, it's not some uniquely British characteristic that you can, you know, um, that, that you can be bankers. Um, there's nothing unique to the soil of England that means you can make Land Rovers. Um, so businesses set up in the United Kingdom, following the same calculation all businesses do, they looked at the advantages and they looked at disadvantages and they looked at the opportunities. And depending on the deal struck with the EU, but really you, the UK will be undercutting its advantages um, of being in the single market. And, and so even if, you know, once the, the short-term pain is over, the UK will just be worse off mm-hmm. um, not catastrophically I mean the the island isn't going to sink into the ocean um, but it, it will it's just it's just a net negative um, I, I, recently uh, the the treasury released its um, its you know report on p- potential potential gains from WTO only brexit with a, a and you know that that showed a, a very small kind of um, you know breaking even on GDP or something, and you dig into how they how they arrived at that figure, and it turns out that in order to get a GDP growth figure that was remotely, kind of looked remotely acceptable, they had to assume that the UK would not only roll over all 41 of the EU's existing FTAs, but sign something like 15 or 17 more, which would completely eliminate bilateral tariffs and that they would do this within a couple of years with China, India, the US, um, and a range of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, think the Gulf Coast states. Now, no one in the history of, to my knowledge, no one in the history of the earth has a duty-free, has a complete tariff elimination deal with the US. Mm-hmm. Not even Canada. Mm-hmm. No one in the history of... Uh, no one in, it's definitely not going to happen with Trump, is it? Let's be honest. Well, but whoever they have, the U.S. doesn't give you complete tariff-free access. They simply don't. No, because of the way politics works, and it just wouldn't. Well, well, but no, there are sectors sectors they protect, and they protect those sectors for a reason. Um, 
and, and so and so I think it's worth being it's worth being honest about the prospects of that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um So I mean the the whole um no deal concept has been getting an awful lot of oxygen um in the last couple of weeks. It seems that it's it's really being pushed quite hard now. I suppose as as it becomes a more real prospect, an imminent prospect. So its defenders are stepping up and justifying it. They're saying that that's some of them are saying that it's what people voted for. And what's what's really worrying is that you're, you're now seeing polls where a lot you get one poll where about a quarter of the people asked seem to think that no deal means literally no Brexit. So you just go back to where we were before. Then you get another um, poll where. Uh, a very large number of people say, "No, no, we get it. We know that it's meaning. We know that it means we leave without a deal. We know that it means that you know uh, all sorts of disruption takes place. We don't care. We want to do it anyway." There was a very chilling piece that um, John Harris wrote in the Guardian today. I think it was, it might have been yesterday, um, where he says, "Look, you know, watch out because there are there. It, it appeals to a certain kind of toxic masculine." Um, mm masochism saying well fuck you all we'll, we'll you know give us you know give us give us give us your best shot go on we'll take it you know this sort of weird kind of trial through fire um desire to be tested uh which i think i mean i think he has a point it's um it is it, it's worrying that there would there would be a number of people out there who would sort of welcome the the pain of it all as a sort of national trial and and, and use it as, as a way of blaming others you then got um, on question time last week. You had Isabel Oakshot, um, God bless her, uh, saying, "You know, let's go for manage no deal," and getting cheers from the audience. Uh, it, 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 it's I had a I had a run in with um, the famous Melanie Phillips of the Daily Mail, um, the columnist who um, is of course famous for all sorts of things, including being so horrible, um, horribly homophobic. But anyway, I had a run in with her because um, she. She 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 said um, she she started talking about side deals, um, and and the, the reaction of a lot of people that um, that are in my bubble in Twitter was they're all crazy they're all mad they don't they don't get it they don't understand it or, or they're just they're just lunatics and I don't think they are I think what's happening here is that like this is my theory I think that Leave has built itself into a kind of mutually reinforcing self persuading echo chamber where. They genuinely believe, because they're each telling each other that it's true, they genuinely believe that uh, no deal wouldn't be a problem because in a no deal scenario, you'd very quickly have what they call side deals. So it would be managed no deal. You'd have side deals which would deal with the most the most urgent emergencies, such as flights being able to take off and medicines being able to arrive and you know, filtration systems continuing to work and so on. They think that that would be done. Now, why do they think that? Well, I think it's because what they're doing is they're looking at the measures that the EU is already taking, that the, 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 the mm. member states, but also the European Commission have already announced, which is to mitigate the impact of no deal on the EU. And they're confusing the EU's measures to mitigate the disastrous impact of no deal on the EU with some kind of, oh, well, they'll give in and they'll just give us a bunch of bilateral deals uh, 
totally ignoring EU competence, totally ignoring what's actually happening, and totally ignoring the fact that in that scenario, the UK is not calling any of the shots. It's simply being presented with some short-term temporary measures imposed by the EU, um, effectively, I mean, effectively imposed, as far as the EU can, just to manage the awful mess that the UK is creating with its no deal. So... <laughs> Uh, good to get that off your chest. Yeah, I was, I was, um, I was willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen. So, so first of all, to to go back to the to the fantastic the John Harris piece, which I thought yeah. was excellent. Um, uh, I think part of the problem is that the negative consequences of No Deal, the trade ones anyway, um, are hugely disruptive, but immensely banal and boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did the I did that thread the other day where I was just talking about look trucks. Why I think there'll be delays even if they don't search trucks. Just the physical act of a truck driver getting off the ferry at Dover and having to hand in three more documents or two more documents for scrutiny, and the time it takes an an official to look at that document, examine it, consider it, decide if uh, if that truck needs to be searched, and if not, waving it on. That if you multiply that by 7,000 trucks a day, you end up with you know multi-day gridlock and this leaked report from customs saying that traffic through Calais Dover could drop by 87%. Mm. But, it, but it's just so incredibly boring, right? Um, when you, like, it's, it's literally kind of paperwork shuffling, it, mm. but, it, but it has all of these kinetic um, circumstances. You know, tariffs are percentage taxes on importers. Like it's 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 dull as rocks. Um, <laughs> trying to explain services market access to somebody without kind of four hours the slides and Professor Lauren Bartels of Cambridge to back me up on the more complicated aspect of the GATS is is you know you you watch you watch somebody's hope slowly die as they recognize <laughs> that the you know the twenty minutes they've spent with me in a services schedule is time they will never get back. Um, whereas the arguments for no for no deal, which are all about kind of this k- kinetic patriotism, yeah, this idea yeah. that listen, we the UK survived the Blitz spirit, survived yeah. the Blitz, or you know, bulldogs were, or business will find a way. Yeah. Um, all of this stuff it, it's it stirs the heart and it's a good rallying cry. Yeah. Um, and also, I think by not talking about the banality of it, it creates an us for them. You still hear a lot of like. The EU is going to punish the UK by imposing tariffs. You, you genuinely still hear that. It's, it's been a year from now. And, and I can understand why somebody would come to that conclusion. Genuinely, I can. Um, because leaving the EU, like I think of it in part as tearing up a free trade agreement. And when you tear up a free trade agreement, you go back to what you had without a free trade agreement. But that's not intuitive. Um, so, so not only is there this kind of we're talking about, you know, banal traffic jams and, and lorry parks and all this lame stuff and pilot accreditation um, and, oh, will there be financial path, financial services passporting into Europe um, and, you know, community licenses for truck drivers. Mm. Uh, but not only are they then not talking about any of that stuff and just kind of waving it off with a she'll be right, the UK spirit will triumph. But then they can also spin it as well, you know, if the if the EU wants to play rough play rough right back or, you know, we won't be bullied. You still have Dominic mm-hmm. Raab talking about trade negotiations with, with bullying. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that is outside of the context of the Trump administration. That is not mm-hmm. normally how trade no negotiators reason. ever talk about uh, what one another is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I can, I can, I genuinely, I have so much, I have so much empathy. Um, you will, I hope, never see me on Twitter get get angry or yell or be dismissive of a member of the general public. Unlike me. Well, every, everybody's got their own style. But, but for me, I'm like, well, I, I completely understand how somebody would, would feel the way they feel. I, I completely mm. understand it. I completely understand if I was if this was the information I was getting, if the one pitch was rally around St. George and, you know, for king and country, and the other pitch was me going, well, you know, um, if the documents are uh, delayed, there might be a delay of ports, and then maybe the ferries won't be able to turn around fast enough, and then maybe there will be just-in-time supply chain disruption. Like, of course you go for the... You go for this. The, I can. The, I'm more convinced by the other thing. Kind of forget your average person that Weatherspoons or whatever. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, I don't. I, I think. I think the the problem by by definition, um, rem, remain or anti no deal, whatever you want to call it, has is that they are talking about real problem, real real problems, and going. What are you going to do? And the counter to that is to talk about ideas and ideology and kind of passion and justice. Um, and, you know, as Hillary Clinton find, found out, you kind of lose that argument 50% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. What, you, what you've done is, of course, you've just put your finger on the um, entire thing about Brexit. <laughs> this is exactly why we are where we are, because um, they've got all the best tunes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they have, of course. I, 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 I'm a passionate pro-European, and I think that you know, I think there's an emotional case to be made for Europe uh, that goes beyond, uh, yeah, well, you know, the just-in-time problems, and um, well, have you seen about the tariff rate quotas? Do you really think that you know we're going to get these sorted out? And, no, I, I, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, it, you're obviously correct um, because um, it has worked so far very effectively to turn people against the EU and to give people the impression that actually, you know what, no deal would be a sort of a great patriotic venture. It would be like Chairman Mao's long march, you know. Um, uh, and, and <coughs> oh, I mean, I literally, that's, that's it, isn't it? it that's, you know, you can see it in, in, in 50 years' time. They imagine the murals that, that we see on the, on the WTO building in Geneva, they, you know, they will be the murals, the, 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 the nation's great long march of, of pain and torture towards the bright sunlit uplands of the I hope it's just future. that. This I hope it's just that photo from their like economists for free trade launch, where it's kind of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage <laughs> yeah. with their hands in their head, yeah. hanging in despair. Old grey men moment. despairing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And look, you're right. There, there probably is an emotional case to be to be made for Europe. I'll tell you. Well, I was in, um, I was in Kiev for the response to MH17 when MH17 right. was shot down. Yeah. Um, and we were uh, we were camped out in, in a in a hotel that was basically opposite the Ukrainian foreign ministry. Yeah. And the Ukrainian foreign ministry, which is a fairly big, you know, it's eight-story yeah, building or something. <laughs> I know yeah, it. Yeah, you know it. Uh, it had a flag 
it had two yeah. flags. It had the Ukrainian flag, yeah. and right next to it, to the tune of 22 stories or whatever, was the EU flag. Yeah. And it's had, they it's had that. that yeah, exactly. And it's had that for a number of years. Yeah. But, yeah. but in the UK, I mean, you know, I once, I once joked on Twitter that I thought Femi was the uh, formal leader of the opposition because I couldn't work out by following Twitter who, who was making the opposite case. But, but it, I mean, if you, if you look for the most passionate pro-Europe voice in in the UK, exclusively from what I can gather from following it on Twitter from a distance, you've got the mayor of London and you've got Femi, who's, I mean, he's, he's done tremendous work, but he, he's a civil society leader with a cell phone who runs around doing information yeah, no, videos. Like stuff. Well, I mean, there are amazing many more stuff, now, but, it's, yeah. it's, but there are more now. But generally speaking, that pro-European case, I don't think was... Yeah. yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's really interesting that up, up until Brexit, um, the, the the by far the most visible pro-European movement was um, in Ukraine, and you saw people out on the street and they were they were waving Ukrainian uh, EU flags while being shot at by by you know security forces and so on mm. and, and and killed, you know. And this is, you know, we were in the middle. We were in the middle of arguing about whether or not we should have a referendum, and whether we should have a renegotiation. In the meantime, people were actually being shot on the streets for Europe in in Kiev, and 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 you know, we were pointing at them, saying, "Gee, you know, look at this." Well, you know, what did the UK do? It went on and and, and shot itself in the in in the foot, at least. Um, but in doing so, it prompted then now, by far and away, the most active um, and em- emotionally charged pro-European movement in the EU or in Europe is, is, is in the UK, I would say. And indeed, you know, you point to people like, like, like Femi, and I think, I think rightly so, but there are many others, people like you know, Madalena, for example, mm-hmm. who, you know, um, who is incredibly active and, and, and um, aggressively pushing um, Europe as a positive thing uh, through the work that she does. And, you know, good honour for that. And you know, and, and and all those other people like the Sodom action outside uh, Parliament, and 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 uh, there's you know the seven hundred thousand people marching up and down in EU flags. Now a lot of people criticise them for for, for 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 the iconography and for using the flag, and, uh, and they saying that that you know that puts other people off. But you know, you don't don't tell me that that's not emotional and that that's not visceral. So um, yeah, it's interesting how this has prompted that. Uh, movement in the UK, um, but we were talking about the tariff schedules and um, signing chits uh, <laughs> over, and um, that that is that is a tougher sell. It's true, tra- tra- dragging dragging us back to to more to more fascinating topics, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Um. So when we were when we were um, having a quick um, exchange of messages um, earlier today. Um, just running over some of the things that we might talk about. You, you sent me a bunch of bullets, <laughs> which went way over my head, frankly. You were like, oh, we could talk about this, and then we could talk about that. And I've got them all noted down here. You're letting and, your uh, listeners into how the sausage of cakewatch is, uh, is prepared. They'll be horrified. I, I hope none of them assumed that we just riff this stuff, and it's just kind of me sitting here in a pair of tracksuit pants and a pair of headphones in Geneva, um, which is entirely true. Um, well, we are kind of riffing it. Yeah. Um, seriously, in terms of detailed scripting goes, um, I could do better. But uh, where are we? A sober discussion of short-term disruption versus long-term slower economic growth 
because the conversation there tends to get out of hand. This is what you were suggesting. <laughs> so let's do that. Right. Well, so so this is kind of um, this is alluding to the points I was making before about there's the question of what happens on day one of Brexit and especially of a no deal Brexit, which is huge and immediate and kinetic, and that's where this kind oh, see, of yeah. kind of idea of empty supermarket shelves and grounded planes and lorry parks comes from. And I think it's it's useful and important um, that people talk about that because it is the most immediate short-term impact. Yeah. Um, but I also think this longer-term vision is important because otherwise you do beg the question, you do beg the argument from the other side saying, well, look, yes, it'll be terrible, but we survived the blitz or whatever it is. Um, you know, Dunkirk, yada, 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 we'll get through yeah. it and then it'll be fine. Whereas yeah. I think it's important, <clears throat> for me, it's important to kind of actually, while you're making those kinetic arguments that I think do resonate with people because empty supermarket shelves are scary, um, you do also say, but also kind of even setting aside, um, you know, yes, uh, it's like getting into the jeans is really painful, but then once you're in there, they're still really tight and constricting, and so it's not a good pair of pants. Um, it, it's that kind of thing where, like, it, even even if there was no immediate disruption from no deal Brexit, if there was some way that all of these issues could be could be smoothly sorted out, um, then it would still it is still a bad idea to dismantle your regional integration yeah. um and, and look i'm very kind and i've made the point before that no one in the history of the earth has been convinced to change their mind on an issue they care even remotely about by an economist coming out with a gdp growth projection mm. i firmly believe that to be true um, i have no evidence to support it and as i've just explained i would never believe any evidence but um but uh, so, so i think there needs to be a, a, a better way to talk about that than just simply saying, well, look, this is going to have a negative 2% GDP impact on us over X years. Because I don't think that's, a, um, that's necessarily a message that resonates with people. But I do think it's important because otherwise you localize all of the downsides of Brexit into this kind of immediate transition period when that's not the case. I mean, what's important here is that, um, as you say, you're not going to you're not going to win over um, the general public um, with economists' arguments, um, and we've seen that way, and we know that. Um, but what what you can do, I think, is get people in positions of responsibility to wake up to their responsibility, to wake wake up to um, their duty to act and i think that that to a certain extent has happened actually i think that um, oh, you're seeing that in parliament you're seeing that there are a number of mps um who may have wavered wavered and wobbled i mean you've got sarah wollaston for example who um she she did vote remain but she was she was actually um on the leave side until very late in the game when she decided you know on, on reflection, she was going to back Remain, but it, you know, she clearly wasn't doing it from a particularly emotional or visceral position. What's happened over the last couple of years, as um, MPs have grappled with the reality and as they've been receiving briefings and as they've been seeing 
<clears throat> the reality of what's coming down uh, the line. Many of them, I think, who are the responsible ones, have said, well, you know what? This is what's going to happen, and I can't in all... I, mm. I, I, have to, I have to be... I have to be on the right side of history here. I have to act in the defence of the interests of my constituents. You know. and, and, and they are now the ones, and of course they, they tend to be the more sober and thoughtful ones who uh, perhaps are better at playing um, the parliamentary game too. So that's, that's the position we're now in, where we're basically in the hands of, of um, a few people who, who are like that, who are in, in the House of Commons, who are now uh, manoeuvring, uh, using procedures to um, to try to take back control and steer this in a safer direction and who are getting an awful lot of shit for it, an awful lot of flack for it and who knows where all this will end up. We, we desperately need those people to prevail. We need those people, the ones who aren't emotional, um, the ones who do listen to the boring facts and see um, things a little bit more objectively. We need them to win. I mean, this is, you know, or else we really are screwed. Well, I mean, tangentially to that, I would say, uh, say two things. First, the way I know, uh, or, or rather something that strongly supports my hunch that my analysis of the potential impacts of no deal is headed in the right direction is how terrified the Prime Minister and most of her cabinet, her actual cabinet, the ones who are actually in the cabinet, appear to be of it. So so, so something that, you know, uh, on, on this topic of is it getting through, I think, you know, mm. the, 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 the politically, it feels like, and again, I have no idea how UK politics works. Um, uh, for, for all I know, the Queen still calls the shots. But, but my understanding of the situation is that if no deal was like a viable, palatable option for the Prime Minister, then the easiest thing for her personally would be to unite the entire Tory party around it, but for a, for a few stragglers, do, do an alliance mm. with the DP or something, and then just, just, just get it done. Go for it. If, she, if yeah. it was remotely, remotely viable, then I think she would have months and months ago decided to wrap herself, would have wrapped herself in the Union Jack and said, you know, no deal, we'll fight them on the beaches, yada, 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 and just and just done it. Because that would have kind of immediately, it would have cut the legs out from under the ERG. They would have gotten behind her. It would have been this phalanx of, uh, of conservative, uh, conservative Praetorians marching, marching into battle under one banner. And she's been under immense political pressure within her own party to do that. I mean, mm. it can't be fun being the prime minister right now and having half of your own party constantly on TV, trashing your leadership, trashing the deal you painstakingly negotiated, and, and calling for something that that you really that that you are probably being briefed would be a nightmare. So the fact that she is not giving into that temptation. Um, to me, speaks to the fact that the briefings in front of her must be truly apocalyptic. And actually, you know, I, I, I don't know how well-received uh, the Prime Minister is on this podcast, but, but actually, just to some extent, she deserves, she deserves some credit for that. Um, 
Uh, I, oh, you, 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 this is Les Majeste, one of our most favourite and beloved public figures. So I'm sorry, Dimitri, you're going to have to immediately withdraw. Listen, she pushed back on Owen Peterson on Article 24 to, uh, in the Commons uh, this morning. So she and I are, she and I are back on good terms. <laughs> I'm once again, a fan of your noble leader. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's. That, that's right. And I no, think, I, th- I think I think you have a very. I think you make a very good 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 argument. I mean, I do. Um, but go on. Sorry. No, I, was, I, I note your tone of surprise, Mr. Kendall. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, listen, I mean, no, I, I think you're right. No, I think it's a very astute. And, and I mean, I think that you know you have the benefit of being, as, a, as I was saying, as a, not not entirely dispassionate, but certainly a, a more objective. Um, relative outsider here and I, I i can't see it through the fog of my, the red mist of my of my remoting anger but um <laughs> i i think i think you make a good case i think that's probably true but then in that case um so if that's true what is she doing uh, refusing to take no deal off the table and what is she doing throwing money into preparations for no deal which okay granted are cosmetics we know that they're not going to actually be enough and, and, and uh, remotely sufficient so, so that's that's we, that's kind of two different um two different two two very different questions um in terms of not taking no deal uh off the table i saw uh i think it was your foreign secretary uh greg hans Make the, former trade minister. Former trade minister, that's right. Former trade minister. Making the case that uh, the UK has to keep no deal on the table in order to provide an incentive or, I guess, an implicit threat to the EU to come back and give the UK just, a better just, deal. So but, like, just... Stupid. It's it's really it's It's really weird, because if you think about it, um, th- there are only a couple of, couple of options here. Either... No deal is so apocalyptic that no government would ever actually allow it to happen, in which case keeping it on the table is not a credible threat. Or, mm-hmm. or no deal is kind of not so bad um, so that the UK government could contemplate it, in which case logically, I mean, everybody understands that Brexit will affect the, I hope, will affect the UK more than the EU, just by sheer numbers, um, in which case it is then proportionately, if it's not a huge deal for the UK, it must be proportionally an even smaller deal for exactly. the EU. So it the, just makes no sense. So, so the only theory where this kind of play makes sense to me is, and I'm going to channel Ian Dunst's love of comics here, is if the UK is like adopting a Joker strategy, where the the idea is to act so irrationally and unpredictably that the EU makes concessions because No Deal is apocalyptic, but they're like, oh my god, these people are going to drag us down with them. Um, Which is not necessarily what I mean I don't want to second I don't want to second guess your negotiators I'm trying to know what they're doing but I'm, I'm not sure that's a high percentage play or um, unless you're doing it sort of by accident unless you genuinely are that unstable I well mean, that's the point that, that's it's sort of like of... triple bluff here yes <laughs> Um, so I don't necessarily understand that. I, I mean I, I, I do take the point that some others have made that they don't really understand what taking no deal off the table would look like legislatively or, I mean what that kind of is does it mean a, a passing a bill that says we will request 
to extend Article 50, for example, if there is no deal done by March 15th. I, I don't know. But, but... Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems to me that there are definitely ways of doing it, which um, and, and some of the um, amendments that are currently mm. being touted about would do, would, it seems to me, would do it. And, mm. you know, I can certainly see ways in which the, the executive could make that promise. Sure. Sure, of course um, it could. So, you know, all well, the people saying, oh, don't be so ridiculous. And the whole point about no deal is you can't take it off the table. Well, actually, actually I think you can. But but on the on the point of, of spending money on no deal preparation, actually, that is something I've been a strong advocate of for about, I don't know, eight months. Um, because I think that, again, my read is that no deal has the potential, at least, to be so disruptive that even if there's kind of a 10% chance it happens... If there is a chance that you know, um, yeah. the, the kind of thing is if if, if if Theresa May is deposed in an ERG coup somehow, and I know that that's probably that's that can't happen now with the way of, but you know if if there is a, a vote of no confidence or something, um, hmm. and Jason, you know Jason Vries Mog becomes prime minister. Um, hmm. and gleefully pushes the UK. I love the, no deal. Sorry, I, I love that you call him Jason because that would really annoy him. So that, thank you. I think that's fantastic. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm. What's his that? What's his not, name? You're not. It's Jacob. It's Jacob. Jacob. But that's fine. Call him Jason because it would really of, annoy him. I think of JRM. God, um, he's become an acronym to me now. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, Jacob Breesmog. Uh, I do apologise to to. No, I don't, presume. Don't call him I Jason. presume by this point he's <laughs> knighted. So is it is it Sir Mog? Oh, not is yet. It no. Lord Mog? No, no. I'm sure it's in the mail. Not yet. His, um, his father was a lord. Yeah. yeah. I, I I was really uh, as a side note. I was um, a little bit offended to be overlooked in the honours list in favour of Lord Redwood or Sir Redwood. Uh, I feel like I did more to defend the pri- and promote the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement deal than he did. He kind of reluctantly kind of sort of agreed to vote for it, but it didn't make a difference. I was out there on Twitter day in, day out, saying, guys, I've been a negotiator. This is the best deal you could get. Uh, you know, it's, it's this, it's this no deal or a bed. Where's my, uh, where's my knighthood? Where's your knighthood? I, 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 could, I, I think, I think um, when, all the, when all the dust settles in the, in the years to come, I think, I think a lot of us will be getting gongs. <laughs> I think counting on it. It's gongs or guillotines <laughs> for us, I think. It's one of the two. We're, yeah. get, we're getting one. We're getting one of the two. Um, but yeah, on on that question, why is she spending the money on no deal prep? I, I think it's a good investment. I think it's the same reason I buy. Uh, I've got you know, I've got life insurance. Like, uh, I yeah. don't expect to die. I hope not to die. Statistically, the actuarial tables still say I've got a couple of years in me, but um, it's I consider the small investment, money well spent compared to. You know what? What would happen yeah. if the low percentage but high high impact occurrence happened? Yeah. So I personally highly support yeah. it. I don't consider it as some do some sort of clever nego- Like there was this idea that if the UK is well prepared for No Deal, that like somehow that provides it leverage over the EU. When you're like, well, you know, if if the EU is going to make preparations too, and they're far less exposed. So unless yeah. they sleep on it, which they clearly haven't, because, hey, by the way, their no-deal prep notices went out in, like, January 2018, because oh, um, they've been taking yeah. this seriously a lot longer than the UK has. 
um, then I uh, don't see the play. But I think it is a, I think it's a good investment to do whatever is humanly possible yeah. to mitigate this yeah. stuff, and even just to think through it. Yeah, but but you you think looking at the facial expressions of them when they talk about it, and looking at the general way in which they've handled. Um, you make a persuasive case that they're not really seriously contemplating no deal. They know how dangerous it would be, so therefore, so therefore, basically, they're just sort of playing uh, a rather transparent game of brinkmanship. You think? Yeah, but my question is, you know, in in this is a, this is a, an out of proportion comparison, but in uh, nineteen, you know, in, in nineteen ten, was there a you know, Somerfor, uh podcast going on with, with with two gentlemen like ourselves saying, "Well, they're not they're not seriously going to plunge Europe into war over, you know, Archduke yeah. of some Archduke." Uh, you know, surely you look at their mm. facial expressions; they couldn't possibly contemplating activating these alliances and sending the boys into the trenches. It's to nobody's interest. I get really nervous because mm. there's this kind of argument you've been hearing for for a year. Go and listen. It's in nobody's interest for this to happen, and therefore it won't. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, the, the, the polar ice caps are melting, guys. That's not a lot of yeah. upsides to that, and we're very comfortably looking the other way on that one. Um, the yeah, fact that, no, you're right. you know, dumb things happen wow. all the time. Okay. Yeah, great. That's a nice little um, layer of doom um, <laughs> to put on the podcast, adding to my general existential sense of "Oh my god, we're all fucked." Uh, I, mm. I met with the uh, the UK National uh, Farmers Union when they came through through Geneva. I guess that whoever was organising their program really really ran out of ideas for for people to meet with, and so they they called a, a, a random blogger with a popular Twitter account, but. Uh, you know, I, I got thrown on my guys. I should warn you, I am not going to sprinkle rainbows here. Um, I, I'm the guy you go to for unvarnished, like pragmatic. Um, everyone's a bastard, and sometimes things just happen. Um, realism, yeah. and uh, yeah, there weren't a lot of smiles at the end in that room. Um, but no. sometimes, you know, um, sometimes bad things happen. Yeah, because I mean, quite honestly, I mean, the brinkmanship game could be played both ways. And I mean, you know, we could um, say, well, you know what, let's just call their bluff and let's, you know, they, they clearly don't want to have a no deal. So let's just stick it out and wait until the end. And then they'll just re- and they'll just revoke Article 50 at the last minute. Uh, that's not a strategy I would advocate because that's that's how you end up with no deal. And, and, and this is when nobody wants it. Uh, and this is the point. I know people talk about the fact that the EU can mobilize, can move quickly when it needs to. But I think one of one of these ideas is that actually, if at midnight, um, if at midnight on the twenty eighth or the twenty ninth, there's there's a breakthrough. There is a, a system the EU has to follow. There is a procedure, um, and the UK too, frankly. So this idea is eventually we you could just reach a point where. Um, <clears throat> Sheer momentum means no deal happens, mm. even if the last minute both sides realize, oh my god, the other side's not going to blink. No, um, that's absolutely true. Well, we, we may even have already reached, I don't think we have, but we we may have already reached that point, actually, you know, arguably. Well, you know, the, um, the, there are increasingly less snide comments being made going, having watched this for a year and, for a year and a half, how sure is the EU they want the UK in? Um, 
Oh, well, oh, well, we've we've discussed that for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, absolutely, and you know, and as you say, the cost of the EU of a no deal exit is like get the UK out one way or the other, and if the other means no deal, well, you look at the costs, you look at the time taken to recover, you look at the costs associated, political and otherwise, with reversing all of this. You know, maybe, maybe they don't want to. Maybe, maybe they're okay with that. Maybe. I mean, I'm not saying that. I mean, I, again, I'm obviously speaking. I'm speaking in a strictly personal capacity. Blah blah blah. Um, but I mean, I think that where the EU was 18 months ago in terms of, I oh, would really like you to reverse this decision. This would be a great geopolitical victory for the EU, and a, and, a, and, a, and a, a, you'd be doing us a solid if you reversed this. I think I think that people have moved on from that. Absolutely. Well, I think yeah. pragmatically, I mean, this is um, th- there's always this kind of shadow on the remain discussion of what does UK politics l- let's say um, somehow Article Fifty is revoked, not just extended but revoked. The UK stays in the European Union. The politics of the UK going forward, I think, will be unrecognisable but also entirely shaped by that decision. And, you know, the the UK politicians already used Brussels bashing as a convenient segue out of any conversation they didn't want to have or to justify any decision they didn't want to make, which is, you know, it's fine. That's that's politics. That's that's life. Um, I'm sure I'm sure internally Brussels constantly bashes the the member states um, and calls them names um, but the it's just going to be up to you know every bad thing that happens in Britain following you know if, if the UK remains in the EU every bad thing that happens from now until the sun burns out some some Nigel Farage's character is going to get on TV and say well you know, that train wouldn't have crashed if we just left the EU. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, yeah, but and Brussels are going to do that either way. way. They are going to do that either yeah. way. But they're, um, they're going to do that either way. And whether the leave will stay, you're going to do, be blaming the EU for everything that happens in the next 10, 15 years in the UK. Yeah. But with the UK inside the EU and with these guys, you know, the, the EU has to, yeah. has to consider that. Now, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think necessarily, uh, I don't think that's, I'm sure the EU would prefer the UK stayed in. Um, uh, I don't have any doubt about that, but it is a you know it, it, as I said these 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 comments are being made uh, or I see them being made in an increasingly less sardonic way. Yeah, um, and I think it's also it's a question of it's not a, it's not a binary thing. It's not about you know um, yes we absolutely hundred percent want the UK to stay and no absolutely we, we, there's no way on earth that we'd want the UK to stay. I, mean, I think what you're talking about is is a, is a comp- complex. Um, formula here of well, you know how, how you know how does this serve our long-term interests, our political interests, our economic interests, our personal preferences, and I think that's the one that's shifting. And I think on balance, yeah, definitely, it's still a case of you know what, let's just stop Brexit. And I think that you hear that a lot from European politicians who are just saying, for God's sake, just you know, you, the, your way out of this is obvious. Have a referendum, vote again on it, just put this awful thing to bed, come back, let's just make up, come on, let's do that. And that's on balance, I think, the vast majority of people feel that way. But I think that there's also an undercurrent of, 
well, would it be that bad? You know, well, we're prepared. We could, we could, we could do this. We could probably ride this out. It might not be such a bad thing for the UK. You know, might. So you know, there's that. There's definitely that going on, and increasingly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, which is, which is. It is very sobering and very worrying. And I mean, I, I you know, I personally, I, I kind of veer a bit between. I mean, I, me. You know, in my personal life, I mean, I know where I, what I want. I want the UK to be right in the middle of the EU, and I want the EU to be moving forward. And I want you know, this is how I see the world. But you know, it, I could also see how if you were perhaps not less sort of personally engaged and had less of a sort of personal beef with the whole thing, you might say, you know, what might what might be best for the UK is, you know, yeah, leave and and and, and you know, let's have some kind of Norway arrangement. Let's have some kind of Norway plus where you're in the single market, so you minimise the the economic disruption, but you're basically not having a say and messing messing us about the whole time. Uh, that might be the best thing for you, just as many people in the UK sort of think that too. Yeah. I don't, because I think that it would be economic, I think it would be democratically outrageous and it wouldn't heal any of the, the wounds that we've got in, in British society. But I could see what some people might think, oh, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing. Well, I mean, from very, very selfishly, as a, as a former Australian negotiator who had to deal with the EU and the member states all the time, um, I think those those who replace me will really miss having the UK in um, in the European Union. I got to say, um, and this isn't to, to criticise any of the other member states, but at the WTO, long before Brexit was even on the radar, the UK mission to the WTO was by far the most engaged of any member state, by far the most plugged in. They were everywhere. They were interested. They had a small team. Uh, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a mission that kind of maybe had three or four four people covering the WTO, but they were they were some of the smartest kind of people I've ever had the pleasure of working opposite, and they were also, I think, um, generally speaking, pushing in a sensible policy pro-liberalisation where it makes sense, curbing some of the more extreme protectionist. Uh, impulses of of the French or or whoever, and really trying to to you know everybody has their own picadillos or whatever, but pushing the 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 EU into a good direction, um, mm. and so I think that will be I genuinely do think that will be missed inside inside the EU that that voice um, for that kind and of more thing. widely. I mean that's a really interesting insight because of course you, you offer an insight that I don't have um and, and we haven't really heard on the podcast which is the insight of a third country trade insider who 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 works in geneva and works in international trade and looks at how the how the eu and the us now so i think it was simon hicks um once said um to me, or he, he said it in, in, in Twitter, he said that uh, he, one of his former students was now a Korean trade negotiator. And, and who the Korean trade negotiator, this Korean trade negotiator had told Simon that really, um, unless you were the US or, 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 or the EU, and maybe these days to a lesser extent China, but unless you're the US or the EU, basically you might well not be there. I mean, and I've, I've certainly that's that's been my experience sitting in the EU, uh, sitting in, in, in the WTO, or in GATT rather, its predecessor, um, in those negotiations, it's effectively, it's, it's, the, it's the US and the EU are doing the talking. That might also be to do with the subject matter of the, of, of, of the 
specific negotiations that I was involved in, which was Boeing versus Airbus. So <laughs> it's obviously going to be the US versus the EU. But in any case, they are the big players who are setting the standards and who are effectively, and you might as well, you know, anybody else is just playing a bit part. Now, do you think that's fair? No. Um, and kind of, let me say, it is incredibly difficult, obviously, to move an initiative in the WTO if you don't have US and, well, US first of all, EU, um, uh, at least acquiescence. Um, hmm. the, the first question, if, if you as, a, as, as another country uh, approach someone and say, listen, we've got this idea, we want to we wanna explore this kind of proposal, a question you'll be asked within a minute and a half is what does the US think? Um, mm. And then two seconds after that, what does the EU think? 10 seconds after that, what does China think? And then um, in descending order, kind of something like India, Japan, the developing country groups. Um, mm. but, but, but nothing, you know, if, if the US, because when the US doesn't want something to move, it doesn't move. The US mm. will just actively block it. Um, and so will a number mm. of other countries. So, so I don't want to give the impression that you can, at the WTO, as a, as a, as a third country, ignore the, the US and EU. But I think by the mm. nature of their systems, uh, both the US uh, and EU are a little bit sluggish when it comes to, to new proposals. And so mm -hmm. smaller, kind of your middle-income countries that are well-resourced enough to have um, like a large engaged mission, but aren't, uh, but aren't bound to a 28-member consensus process or the horrific U.S. interagency consultation process, um, are able to to push forward ideas and gather consensus around them and be more um, experimental. So, uh, you know, for example, the Right now, there's an e-commerce initiative that is being championed by Japan, Singapore, and Australia. They're the, uh, I believe, uh, I hope I haven't misstated that. But the, the, they were able to put that together, basically put the first pieces together, and then approach the US with it, approach the EU with it. But they did the legwork. And they, they're the public face, or they're the chairs of the initiative. Um, the Trade and Services Agreement, TSA was um, you know, in, in, in large part pushed by, by, Austra uh, by Australia, and Australia was one of the co-chairs. You had a U.S. co-chair, an EU co-chair, and an Australian co-chair. Um, and I, I'm hugely biased because I was on this team, but I think we did our fair share or more of the heavy lifting, um, in large part because the, the, our Geneva-based negotiator on that is an absolute force of nature, um, who was TSUP. Uh, incarnate. So there's certainly room for, for smaller countries to advance initiatives um, and to do things. I think part of the problem is that there's a lot of focus at the WTO on these big ticket negotiations, which have been mm. deadlocked forever and which are deadlocked in yeah. large part because of disagreements between US and EU, um, US and China, yeah. um, EU and India. Um, yeah. And there's much less focus on the kinds of things you can constructively do in the WTO uh, inside the regular committees by on very specific issues that make a difference to exporters in your country. Mm. Um, mm. Raising concerns about where another country's uh, regulations are inadvertently protectionist. Um, 
you know, raising raising concerns about about where you're being blocked in in violation of the uh, of the rules, pushing for transparency, pushing for for countries to put out there how their how their market actually works. So there's a lot um, there's a lot smaller countries can do there. Um, mm. But look, there's a there's a reason this thing the WTO hasn't gotten a tremendous amount of new uh, new trade rules agreed and agreed in twenty years. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, um, that, that was actually genuinely. I, I found that genuinely interesting. Um, uh, it's an insight that um, I, I don't really get to hear much um, in my Brussels Eye retire. So thank you. Um, listen, um, we've been talking for a very long time, and uh, I know that you um, have got other stuff that you need to get to get on and do. Um, before we finish, is is there firstly anything else that you wanted to cover while 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 we're here? Um, listen, just to remind everyone that free trade agreements are really, really hard and that anyone who, whenever you hear someone promising you a, a fantastic amount of new access into foreign markets because of free trade agreements, they will negotiate. Um, I would encourage extreme skepticism, um, because free trade agreements don't tend to kick open locked doors um, because locked doors tend to be locked for a reason. Um, and, yeah. and so that's something yeah. I try to leave every discussion with. Um, now, that's a really good point. And I, I think that the um, there, there's, there's an absolutely um, straightforward trade-off here, which is that um, you trade off um, uh, wins, for speed, so I mean, if if you've got the if you've got um, a UK politician promising twelve uh, free trade areas by next Tuesday, uh, free trade agreements by next Tuesday, um, the only way that they're going to get free trade uh, twelve free trade agreements by next Tuesday is if they basically just give in on everything. Well, they just give the farm away. Well, this is the the question I always say is that at the end of the day, trade agreements are politics. And in a lot of ways, they're domestic politics. And one of the really one of the best ways to determine who is going to end up making greater concessions in a trade agreement is to ask yourself: For whom is the uh, press conference where it is announced that negotiations have either stalled or broken broken down a more painful per political blow? Um, which is yes. which is why, honestly, if your if your listeners and the British general public generally genuinely care about British trade policy going forward um, if if brexit happens, then I would encourage every single person in the UK to write to Liam Fox personally and say, "I will not hold your promises of rapid FTA success against you if it doesn't transpire that would be if you could free him from every bold statement he has ever made about kind of immediate buccaneering glorious future of unlimited success within short times that would be the single greatest gift you could give uk trade negotiators is everybody promises to pretend he never said anything like that and if he turns around you know a year from now and he that, that's a tough that is going to be a tough sell guys, to our listeners they're asking too much not holding everybody not holding Liam fox to account for his shitty promises <laughs> look i don't know i don't know if i'm going to do that <laughs> <laughs> you just you just don't love Britain the way I apparently do, having been there five or six times. Um, 
But this is something. Um, and, and look, if, if we're wrapping up, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't wish Steve all the absolute best. Um, and just to say to everybody listening that um, I thought your your episode on, on anger management and stress management is spot on. This is going to be a really long... You know, people think this is going to end... Like, one way or the other, this doesn't end on March 29th. Yeah. Um, you can ask Switzerland. Uh, the UK is going to be negotiating with the EU until the sun burns out. Um, oh, yeah. This is yeah, a yeah. long haul, and burning oh, yeah. your, uh, allowing your health or your mental health yeah. to suffer over it um, doesn't, d- isn't a win for whatever cause you hold dear, whether it's yeah. leave, remain, or Norway. Um, so please do, t- please do take care of yourselves. Um, that is so, that's such great advice. And you're, you're so right. You're so right. Like, yeah, that's great. Look, Dimitri, thank you so much. Listen, um, do you have a lie of the week that you'd like to share with us? You don't have to, it's optional. Um, well, I mean, it's got to be this Article 24 thing, which I, if you if you give me a minute, I will talk through this, this concept. Um, please, go for it. So Article 24 of the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade is a, um, uh, is a part of the WTO that was intended to basically allow countries to create free trade agreements and customs unions with each other. Um, ordinarily in the WTO, there are some, there's a concept called most favored nation, which is the idea that you charge the same tariffs to everybody. And one of the, one of the few ways, one of the few exceptions to this is that you could sign a free trade agreement or create a customs union where you and another party would on substantially all of your trade on as much of your trade as you can on really almost all of it, you would have preferential better access with one another. And one of the uh, one of the articles basically in the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, this Article Twenty Four, says that if you have mostly finished one of these, uh, a free trade agreement or a, uh, a customs union, but you're, you're not quite ready, you're not quite there yet, but you want to begin cut- cutting tariffs already, you can come to the WTO membership and say, "Hey, listen." Uh, myself and Peru are about to get this free trade agreement done, or as com- uh, customs union finished, we're almost there. Uh, we're going to implement it over a number of years, and here's what it's going to look like, and you hand that over, and then you say, here's what, um, here's our schedule for how it will enter into force. Here's our plan to get from where we are today to this customs union or this free trade agreement being fully in force, and on the way we will cut tariffs between to, to kind of get there. Um, and so this was in- intended to allow these things to be phased in. Um, now, the entire membership could basically object to your plan and block block this initiative. They could uh, offer suggestions that if you weren't willing to take on board, um, you would... Uh, you would lose... Uh, you, you couldn't move ahead with your phased introduction plan. Um, and so because of that, and because this was kind of an unwieldy legalistic thing, it never got used. Uh, they, there was a new mechanism created called the Transparency Mechanism um, and the Committee on Regional Trade Agreements, where basically when you have a free trade agreement done, you come to that committee and you say, we've done a free trade agreement, and here are the details of it, and we think it covers substantially all trade, and we're going to apply it provisionally, and the committee can't block that. They can just ask you hard questions. 
This is a very long introduction, and I assume most of your readers are now, most of your listeners are now firmly passed out. This is, this is already the best lie of the week ever, but keep going. <laughs> um, now, somehow, that has been transformed in the minds of um, JRM, uh, Mr. Rees-Mogg, um, Mr. Mogg, uh, and a couple of others, to basically say that either the UK can use this to compel the EU to keep things exactly as they are now for up to 10 years, or it the UK and EU can kind of agree to do it and basically say, listen, we are going to have a free trade agreement where we're going to have it eventually, so we're just going to keep tariffs at zero, ignore our obligations under the WTO, um, and and go away, it's all legal. Uh, and that has somehow been transformed into, well, actually, no deal's not so bad. Um, it, it is complete, it is complete not a bollocks. Um, it's, it, there isn't... A, the situation is, if the UK and EU genuinely want to keep their existing arrangements as under the withdrawal agreement, they don't have to do anything. They just, they just keep them going. Hmm. But that's not what's being contemplated in the no deal. Mm-hmm. If the UK and EU want to breach their WTO commitments... They want to go back on what they have committed to all of their trading partners in the WTO to do in terms of MFN and mm-hmm. do something dodgy, like give each other zero tariffs for a while and then deal with an FTA in the future. Not now, to mention, of course, all these bilateral agreements. Well, yeah. It, MFN clauses, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, to be fair, were signed in a no-tariff environment. But anyway, um, they could mm-hmm. do that. Uh, it would be a breach of their WTO rules, but the WTO doesn't have uh, a space force. They don't have the authority to, to <laughs> nuke... <laughs> Uh, nuke Brussels and London from orbit. Um, it would it would be a breach, and there are procedures to follow. But there wouldn't be a lot of kinetic circumstances, except for the fact that this would be the UK and EU, two of the greatest champions of the multilateral system out there, at least in their rhetoric. Um, turning around and going, we're actually going to ignore the foundational principle here because it's inconvenient for us. Hmm. Um, so the EU's not going to do that anyway. Well, yeah. one would think. And then, the th- but then this third option of there is a way of uh, having your cake and eating it too, where we, the UK and the EU, derogate from their obligations, but it's all somehow legal because of this loophole in Article 24 that says that as long as you promise to eventually have a free trade agreement, you can do whatever you want, is for me the lie of the week. Because again, it is this attempt to distract from the reality of what mm-hmm. no deal will mean. And it's mm-hmm. yet another way to push businesses who might be tossing up whether they should put in place a no-deal plan, whether they should be taking certain steps or government departments or whoever you want. It's a way to push them off doing that. And for, so for me, that's the, the harmful lie of the week. Okay. So that, I mean, the classic Brexit, Brexiteer smokescreen where they um, latch onto something which is then discussed in their WhatsApp group and their little... Um, ivory tower as being a potential solution most of the people talking about it don't understand it at all perhaps a few of them do and, and, and are happy to lie about it but either way what they're doing is they are talking about it in their plausible uh, public school way uh, and uh, people hear it and because they seek reassurance they want they want to be reassured they they, they hear it as reassurance and what you're saying is that is um, a, a, a really sneaky and immoral way of um, 
pulling the wool over people's eyes when they really need to face up to the actual reality of this, which is that this isn't going to solve anything and this is not going to avert no deal and you need to be making your preparations. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally it just comes down to, and I've tweeted this before, there's no sneaky legal solution to the trade realities of Brexit. No. So far, it's not an episode of Suits. Nobody's going to come in at the last... This isn't Perry Mason. Nobody's going to find some obscure precedent buried in on page 320 of the consolidated WTO text that says everything will be fine after all. They, yeah. These are hard realities, and they have to be confronted. Dimitri, is this really the first podcast you've done? Yes. Because you're really good at this. Oh, yes, you're far <laughs> too kind. Uh, once, no, you really are. So, so Maya Keynes once asked a question. I WhatsApped her on Trade Talks, and that was very exciting. But that, that what is, was that? Uh, Samia so, uh, Keynes, um, the Trade Talks podcast, the one with oh, um, yeah. Chad mm-hmm. Bone. Um, so, she, so I once sent in a question, and she asked it on air. So that well, is the extent of my got. podcast experience. <laughs> that knowing all of the Pod Save America ads off by heart. Uh, <laughs> So you're a, you're a, you're a consumer, but um, this is the first time as a provider. Yes, uh, th- that and b- between this and Dungeons and Dragons podcasts I listen to, this is uh, the extent of my podcast experience. Oh, we could go down a little nerdy rabbit hole on, on Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> podcast. You listen to that one in Australia, the Australian one. You must do. What's it called? No, I listen to Critical Role because I'm very uh, mainstream. Um, uh, but uh, the yeah. Uh, I, Firmly believe your listeners don't want to hear about this. <laughs> Next, if you ever have me on again, we can do the entire thing in character, as you know. Oh, that'd be so awesome. We could LARP it. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Somewhere somewhere at home, We're Steve is just so, sat bolt upright, going like, there's a great, somebody is breaking my podcast. <laughs> just kind of trying to that'd unplug so your awesome. internet from across the... <laughs> Yeah, we had that conversation actually in one of our very first podcasts, which we're coming out for our first year anniversary. Actually, it's very exciting. Oh, but yeah, we had that conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Because I mean, although he looks like a larper, he uh, he's not. He doesn't really do D and D. So um, we, we, yeah, listen. <laughs> we definitely should wrap up. All right. So look, um, thank you so much. Um, I've really, really enjoyed this. Oh, I think likewise. this has been one of my, you know, this has just been an awesome podcast. You have um, taught me a lot and uh, you're really good at this. <laughs> we might have to get you on um, again. I'd love to. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop. The creepy stuff, the secret wars. They can't expose them all. going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop. Seeming soft, a natural loss. They can